Hello, I'm Andrew Brewer. I am your host of the Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast. And this podcast is where we discuss things, all healthcare related things and topics that might be of interest to our audience who is comprised of healthcare professionals in our 17 county region in Northwest North Carolina. So um, today I have, I am fortunate and privileged to have Dan Dubovsky um, on the podcast. And Dan is a seasoned veteran in uh, mental health and, and counseling and all kinds of things, but he has been uh, engaged with us at Northwest AHEC um, uh, with the our programs on fetal alcohol uh, syndrome, did I get that right? Um, and uh, we've we've had several programs uh, about FASD, and uh, I'm, I'm going to let uh, hand it over to you, Dan, and let you kind of fill in the gaps uh, of your background and how you got into all this. Okay, thanks a lot, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, and yeah, um, my background is actually as a mental health clinician. I, I have had a lot of different positions. I actually started out working as a uh, direct care staff in residential treatment center with children and adolescents with, uh, back then it was severe emotional disturbance. Now it's called mental illness. Uh, and did that for about five years and then um, got a master's in social work, worked as a therapist in another residential treatment center with children, adolescents, and uh, young adults and their families. Uh, and then worked, did outpatient work, individual, marital, family, and group therapy for about five years uh, in a community-based uh, mental health center. Uh, worked in medical social work for a while, uh, worked in and supervised social workers in acute care lock psychiatric units in a community-based hospital, worked in HIV and AIDS, uh, and uh, then spent about eight and a half years uh, working at a medical school doing training for people working in mental health and substance use services. Uh, and uh, then I was the uh, FASD fetal alcohol spectrum disorder specialist uh, for the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration FASD Center for Excellence uh, for almost 15 years until the government defunded the center in 2016. And since then, I've been an independent contractor and I've been involved in FASD for probably over 30 years now. Um, mostly got into it because of my son uh, who was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome when he was 19 years old and uh, then needing to learn more about it and uh, what it was and how it affects people. Uh, so that's what kind of got me into that specialty area. Wow, I, I mean, that's a, an impressive uh, background and it seems like uh, you have helped a lot of people in your career and I appreciate that because um, I know you, you, you know, I can tell just by your energy that you care a lot and you put a lot into working with people who probably need it more than anybody. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I do. I do enjoy working with people and, you know, providing whatever help I can. Well, I, let me start out with this. What have you noticed, if anything, over the last two years in this whole space of 
of, of mental health and specifically substance uh, use treatment and disorders? And have you noticed any changes during the whole pandemic? Um, yeah, I think that, um, unfortunately, I think there's been more substance use, um, especially around alcohol. Uh, and um, in the last couple of years with the pandemic, because people are kind of some sometimes feel trapped at home, uh, can't get out uh, to socialize. So, and then there are uh, more of the online groups that have like, there are things like um, Zoom uh, uh, happy hours and the idea you have your kids at home, you need a break, just have a few drinks or have a drink. Uh, and a few years ago, there was something that came out called mommy juice, which was, you know, alcohol uh, specifically for, for mothers. And I think that increases a lot of risk. Um, I think that, again, the feeling some people lost their jobs uh, and that feeling of being overwhelmed and being hopeless and, and trapped. Uh, sometimes people go turn to substances because at least for the moment it blocks out the the pain of that. It doesn't work long term, but I understand why people get into that. So I think that we'll see more issues around substance use uh, because of the pandemic. I think we're going to see more FASD in the next year or so because of the pandemic. Um, and now we have, and, and the fact that alcohol is our legal drug, people often don't see it as a drug. Um, and people talk about, uh, even I live in Pennsylvania and our department, state department is the department of um, alcohol, drug and alcohol. And it's like, then people think that alcohol isn't a drug. Why, you know, why isn't it alcohol and other drugs? Um, but uh, so people and people think that it is because it's legal, it's got to be safer than illegal drugs. Uh, but in many ways, especially if somebody is pregnant, it's actually more dangerous. Uh, and now with a lot of states moving towards uh, legalizing marijuana use, uh, there is some research that's showing that adding uh, cannabinoids to even low levels of alcohol significantly increase the effects of alcohol on an unborn child. So again, now we're gonna have two legal drugs that people think, well, that's much safer than using crack or using meth. We'll just drink and, and smoke pot. But <laughs> if somebody may be pregnant and not even recognize it, that could be really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I, I was gonna ask, I was going to mention the way we separate alcohol and drugs as mm -hmm. if alcohol is not. And and one of the observations I had was at the beginning of the pandemic when they closed the gyms but kept the ABC store open yeah. here in North Carolina, um, that was a signal to me that maybe it's not really about our health <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> revenue, uh, tax revenue that the state uh, seems to enjoy because um, uh, they don't get much of that from the gym. But that's either here or there aside, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we do have this notion that alcohol is just a part of life. It's on every commercial during sporting events. Uh, um, it's just so normalized. And I want you to, uh, um, tell the listeners, uh, 
you know, in no uncertain terms, how much is a safe amount of alcohol for a pregnant woman? Um, actually, um, none. Uh, and, you know, you keep hearing, I, I, there are still obstetricians telling women, congratulations, you're pregnant, go home, have a glass of wine, have a drink once in a while. And for one person, that may be okay, because a drink may be just four ounces of wine, for example, um, or uh, 12 ounces of regular beer. But for another woman, um, a drink may be a 64-ounce double big gulp or a 40-ounce Foster's, or a big balloon glass filled with wine, that they, they consider that a drink. And the problem is there is no way to predict how much alcohol will cause how much damage for a specific individual, because everybody metabolizes alcohol differently. Even a fetus, an unborn child, metabolizes alcohol differently. So what the effect of, al of a certain amount of alcohol is going to be on an unborn child, we can't predict that for everybody. So somebody may have a drink once in a while during pregnancy and their child is born and doesn't have any problems. And then we think, well, then it's okay for everybody to do that. And I've had people say to me over the years, you know, there's no, I've had physicians say, there's no proof that a drink a day will cause the birth of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome. My response is you're absolutely right. And there's no proof that a drink a day will not cause any damage. Uh, we cannot say this amount of alcohol is safe for everybody. So the only proven safe amount of alcohol to consume during an entire pregnancy, and that's and the problem is that's before people know that they're pregnant. And that's where a lot of the, the early damage can occur, which is why this is not willful, purposeful behavior where, you know, people will drink during pregnancy to harm their unborn child. There's so much stigma around this that we really have to get over um, because people don't drink while they're pregnant to harm their unborn child. There are many different, and they may be drinking before because as you said, Andrew, it's part of our society. Uh, it's everywhere, alcohol. Uh, it's at parties, it's at graduations, it's at engagement parties and weddings and on vacation, you're on vacation and you have, you know, you're just relaxing and you're having some drinks. And often people don't recognize when they're first pregnant. Um, so the only proven safe amount of alcohol during the entire pregnancy is none. And the question is, is it really worth the risk? So what we used to say at the FASD Center for Excellence is, um, if you are pregnant, if you are thinking of getting pregnant, or if you have been in a situation where you might have gotten pregnant, which is having unprotected sex, then don't drink. Mm -hmm. um, and also, this is not just a woman's issue. This is a man's issue as well. Um, there is some research that's showing that alcohol use before conception, that can affect the sperm and therefore can affect the unborn child. Um, so the same is true for men. It, and the problem is, what do you do? You go out, you party, you have a lot of drinks, and then you have unprotected sex. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to just, in summary, there is no safe amount of alcohol right. Sorry. to drink when you're pregnant. No, you said it very well. I'm just reiterating just so that everyone knows. I mean, I, it's it just blows my mind that a toxin, a known toxin, is so... 
ignored when it is in the form of, you know, a nice glass of red wine or, a, you know, a craft beer or a seltzer is, is sort of the most nefarious now that I see because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a, a, a very efficient delivery uh, vehicle for alcohol. And um, it's disturbing to me to see kids um you know i have teenagers and i've seen their friends and 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 them as well um you know desiring the uh seltzers and the flavored it's basically seltzer water with alcohol added so we're we're taking something that um is somewhat healthy and then adding a toxin to it um so that you get the effects but uh we're, we're, we've normalized it so much. It's just, it's just, it disturbs me of, of how, how available it is and how many different forms it is and, and how accepted it is. And, and I don't have a question in that. I just wanted to get that out there. No, no, I think that's true. And then there are the, I think about the, the lemonade, the hard lemonades. And mm-hmm. it's like, again, as you said, it's like things that are, that are sweet, that are tasty. And then it's like, you know, well, that's okay to drink. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk um, about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So it's a spectrum, I guess, since the word is in there. What are some of the the signs? How early can it be detected? Um, and, 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 and what do we do about it? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it is really a spectrum where it can go from mild effects that may be never picked up as due to prenatal exposure. So it may be a person who just had trouble with math in school or has trouble with math uh, because the part of the brain that has to do with abstract thinking is often uh, affected. Uh, it could be the person who just has trouble with social situations or reading nonverbal cues or body language or being inappropriate in social situations where it's never seen as due to maybe prenatal exposure. Um, all the way to fetal death. Uh, so it, it is a true spectrum of effects. It's also a true spectrum in terms of uh, intellectual abilities. People used to think that most people with an FASD um, had a low IQ, but they've identified people with an IQ in the genius level who still have an FASD, which means that they, they can't follow three directions at once. Uh, because that's one of the things that happens. And and it's understanding that the effects of alcohol on an unborn child, uh, it affects a number of different developing systems. It can affect the limbs, it can affect the heart, it can affect the, the, the lungs, but it, it, it targets the developing brain in the way other drugs of abuse don't. Um, and so that understanding that the effects that we see and the behaviors we see in people with an FASD are often due to the damage in the brain. So the, the, the part of the brain, for example, that's responsible for uh, being able to follow multiple directions, um, or it's, it's part of what, what we call working memory or immediate memory, um, that part of the brain is often damaged across the spectrum in FASD. Um, and that means that if, if immediate memory or working memory is impaired, then if you tell the person with an FASD to do something, um, you give them three instructions, and it could be a child, it could be an adolescent, it could be an adult, but you're giving them three instructions, and then they don't follow through and they don't do it. It looks like they're being purposefully oppositional. 
but really it's damage in this area of the brain. Uh, so, so often they are misdiagnosed with things like oppositional defiant disorder, uh, reactive attachment disorder, ADHD, bipolar disorder, uh, antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. And unfortunately, our treatments in mental health are based on diagnosis. So you get the diagnosis, here's the treatment. And if you miss the fact that maybe that's not that that's not an accurate diagnosis, you're not going to provide the right treatment. So you asked about, you know, when it can be diagnosed, when it can be picked up. Uh, ideally, of course, at birth, but rarely, rarely at birth. Um, there was an old study that was done that in a, in a major obstetric hospital in the United States that found a hundred percent failure rate in identifying fetal alcohol syndrome at birth. Um, now, the full syndrome has certain facial features um, that are most typically easiest to identify somewhere between the ages of about five and eight or nine years old, where you can see them, but they really could be identified early. Um, some people with an FASD have a small head size called microcephaly. Uh, and that's because one of the things that alcohol does is it kills a lot of brain cells early on. You know, I think about how when I was in college, you know, friends of mine would go out and drink and say, oh, my God, I drank so much last night. I was killing my brain cells. And now we know that that's true. <laughs> that is one of the things that alcohol does. Um, but, you know, so sometimes the overall brain is smaller than it should be which, and then the overall head size is small, then it should be called microcephaly, but it needs to be measured really carefully. Um, and then there are certain facial features, but that's main, mainly the guess, maybe 15% of those with an FASD. So the majority of those with an FASD look okay. They may have an average IQ, um, and they may, as they get older, be very verbal and talk. So they can tell you what they need to do. They just can't do it. And that's why they, they're seen as just being willful in their behaviors. And that gets them into trouble in every area. Um, so ideally, the er we know that the earlier we identify it, the better the long-term outcomes. Uh, because then we see the person is having a disability. The problem is, you know, if you have somebody who has a severe vision impairment, right? Then in school, sorry, in school, you're not gonna make them sit down and read the textbook and answer the questions, right? Um, you may provide them with braille or, or you may read it to them. If they have a severe hearing impairment, again, you're gonna modify what you do. If they're in a wheelchair, you're not gonna ask them to run laps. Right, because they have this physical disability. The problem with FASD is that it's typically it's a it's a brain-based disability. So we often don't see it by looking at the person. And what happens then is we think the person is just can do more than they really can do. Um, so, well, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I, you answered a lot of the questions that I had uh, uh, in, in all that. And one of the, I guess, things is is what percentage uh, 
are misdiagnosed. I mean, probably I'm, I'm assuming a, probably a large majority of them are, are misdiagnosed. Yeah, that would be my guess is that a lot of them are misdiagnosed. Um, yeah. And, and is, it seems to me there would also be some parental stigma about admitting, you know, and there would be a reluctance to offer that information of, yeah, I, I was a drinker when I was pregnant. Um, so that, that piece of information may be left out, uh, making the puzzle even harder to solve. Is that something that you see happening? Oh, I think that's a huge issue, Andrew. Uh, and again, I think it's that stigma that, you know, people are then going to judge them. And that maybe somebody heard that it's not good to drink or use other substances while you're pregnant. So if somebody has, even before they knew they were pregnant, then, you know, they're not going to come out and admit that. And again, the earlier we, and it's so important to be able to say, yeah, you know, before I knew I was pregnant, I was, I was drinking or while I was pregnant, all this was going on and I had, and I, and I was drinking because that helps us help the family better by recognizing that. So, you know, I don't ask people, did you drink while you were pregnant? Because the answer is often going to be no. But, you know, think about, you know, we celebrate a lot of things in our lives. We celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, vacations. And for most of us, when we celebrate things, we have a few drinks. That's our society. So if you can think back to the three or four months before you became pregnant, what were you celebrating and how were you celebrating? Mm-hmm. Because that's early pregnancy for most. And it kind of try, it, I, I try to normalize it. This is not a matter of you did a terrible thing. And is there guilt when, when people recognize that? Sometimes there is, but again, it's, you didn't do this on purpose to harm your child. And recognizing it is so helpful And then our being able to talk about, okay, this is what can help your child be more successful and, and do better. Yeah. I think, I think separating the behavior and the intention, because like you're saying, you know, no, one's going to intentionally say I'm drinking to damage my (laughs) unborn child. So, you know, their, their behavior. Yeah. Even though it's, it's not good, their intention was not to cause harm. So I think if, uh, you know, with that approach, it may ease someone's ability to admit, uh, you know, or to at least expose that information um, during their pregnancy. So, um, but yeah, that's that's got to be a challenge. Now, what, uh, you know, what what are their tests? Um, you know, you said between five and nine or somewhere around there is when, uh, you know, some of the diagnosis is, I guess, more easily discovered than, than beforehand because I guess that's when developmentally kids can talk more and express uh, you know express more of uh, uh, of or you know show indications of not developing at the same rate as the the norm I guess and things like that are there are there specific tests that are done um, to to try and diagnose this better these days well yeah there is there there are a, a few different ways to diagnose this that have been developed. They're they're very similar, but there are slight differences um, between them in in uh, in uh, just diagnosing. Usually, ideally, it it would be a diagnostic team that would do the actual diagnosis, which would involve things like um, physical examination by a physician, uh, a neuropsychological testing. 
which is really helpful. Sometimes speech and language or occupational therapy or, or um, physical therapy are involved. Um, and uh, so that would be the team that would then do the diagnostic evaluation. Uh, there are some tests that really begin to identify these are individuals who have some difficulties. Um, for example, there is adaptive functioning testing, which can be done, and there are a number of different adaptive functioning tests out there. I think the Vineland adaptive functioning test has been around probably the longest, but there are some others that really pick up, especially when they, when they get into adolescence and adulthood, the, the gap between where they are chronologically and where they are functioning in certain areas around things like um, socialization, ability to read social cues and know how to respond, um, written and verbal communication, and daily living. Um, so we can see those gaps and say, okay, this person is, for example, 17 years old, but really in terms of their functioning in, in socialization, they're really more at an eight-year-old level. And it doesn't mean we treat them as an eight-year-old, but just recognizing those gaps. Also, um, I was working with a number of women's residential substance use treatment programs in three different states a few years ago, trying to get them to recognize the, the women in treatment who, and one of them also, one of the states also had men's treatment programs. So the individuals in treatment, the adults who had an unrecognized FASD, because our typical substance use treatment approaches like individual therapy and group therapy and AA and NA and motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral approaches aren't gonna be effective in FASD and they are just gonna be seen as unmotivated for treatment or treatment resistant or treatment failures. Um, so I wanted them to recognize the adults in treatment, especially people who are back in treatment for the second or third time and tell you that they know what they need to do and then they don't follow through, that many of them may actually have an FASD. So as they, as I was working with them and they began to recognize people in their programs, they said, you know, how do we recognize these people? Um, so, um, two colleagues of mine at the University of Washington and I developed a screen called the Life History Screen. And it's not diagnostic, but it's a way to identify older adolescents and adults who may well have an FASD. Uh, and um, there is actually a group in um, Germany that, uh, as these two women as part of their thesis, wanted to validate the Life History Screen. Um, so they translated it into German and, and they found that it was about 90, almost 93% effective in identifying those with and or without an FASD, which is pretty, pretty good for a screen. Um, and, but it's how you, you know, it's, you know, the screen isn't just generally available. You don't hand it to somebody because it's how you introduce it. It's, you know, you're talking with somebody, you don't say, you know, did you drink during your pregnancy? Um, or did your mother drink during her pregnancy with you? If you're talking with an adult, because the answer is going to be no, absolutely not. Or how the hell do I know? <laughs> Could also be the answer. But, you know, so for diagnosis, 
except for full fetal alcohol syndrome, where we see these physical features, you need confirmed maternal alcohol exposure. And when you're dealing with adults, or you're dealing with children who have been adopted or have moved around a lot, often we don't have that information. So the screen was developed so that we could say, this is a person with a probable FASD, even if we don't know that information. Ideally, that would be helpful in the screen. So how you ask about that is important, you know. And if you're asking, you know, one of the, the questions involve things like childhood history and maternal alcohol use. So you're going to ask, you know, did your birth mother have problems with alcohol, you know, um, while you were growing up when you were young? Uh, and then, you know, did she consume alcohol while she was pregnant with you or before she became pregnant with you? And again, how the heck would I know that? Mm -hmm. um, is there anyone in your family who was around at that point who we could talk to? Is your birth mother still alive? Would it be helpful for us to talk with her so that we can explain why we're asking that and the importance of asking that information? Um, so the screen, we, we've been using it um, to identify people who may well have an FASD because if we identify them, and it may also pick up people with other subtle cognitive impairments who still don't do well with typical treatment, then we need to modify treatment to help them achieve their, their potential. Well, that was my next question. What, what, let's say you do identify and it's pretty clear that it's, uh, you know, a spectrum of fetal alcohol, uh, use, uh, or exposure. What, what are the treatments now? Like, you know, what, what, what is working? Well, it's, it's basically. Understanding, as I said earlier, the brain damage. So it's breaking everything down to one step at a time, one direction at a time, one instruction at a time, one rule at a time, limiting the number of rules. I was working with an agency, a substance use treatment agency that had 63 rules and 58 consequences for negative behaviors. And I thought, I can't imagine anybody following 63 rules. Uh, we need to limit the number of rules. Uh, a lot of repetition because of the damage in working memory uh, so that when staff get frustrated or families get frustrated, you know, we went over this five times already. Do we have to go over it again? The answer is yes, because of the damage in working memory, not because they are um, not paying attention. Uh, their ability to, to get abstract thinking, things like metaphors, similes, Proverbs, idiom, that's that's gone. So we need to be very literal in how we approach them. Um, a lot of positive support and a lot of modeling because my experience with people with an FASD is that they learn best by modeling the behavior of those around them. Um, reward and consequence approaches don't work. So these, you know, agency, they all have a reward and consequence approach. You know, it's like, um, I remember one agency, if you did not submit your request for a pass by Wednesday by noon, you could not go on a pass that weekend. And that means you have to sit down and you have to write the pass. And if you're really motivated, then you will do that. Now that works with a lot of people. That's why we do these approaches. Absolutely. And we don't have to create new approaches. We have to modify them for the person with an FASD. Because the idea is, okay, they didn't get their pass in, 
Friday or Saturday comes, they can't go on their pass, then they will learn to get their pass in on time, their request in on time. That's what works with a lot. For those with an FASD, all that happens is they think that they're just bad or, you know, you're just picking on them because Friday comes and they're ready to go out and they have no idea why they can't go out. That has to do with the sense of time, which is part of abstract thinking. So the modification would be <clears throat> somebody sits down with them on Wednesday morning and completes the pass with them and then gets it submitted to help mm -hmm. them be successful. We can modify motivational interviewing, but it's got to be different than the way it was initially developed. Because in you know the, the way it was developed, it was brief treatment where a lot of the work is done by the individual by themselves. And what we do is point out discrepancies between where they say they want to be and where they are now. They think about that and decide maybe they need to change their behavior. Not going to work in FASD unless you do it all together. So it's much more active, much more directive, um, much more supportive approach. Uh, so I think those are things that really can work if we recognize the FASD. Yeah, it sounds like a lot more patience is required and like you said, positive support, modeling. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what is, I got a couple questions. What, what is the most uh, prevalent misdiagnosis? Is it ADHD? Do they just give them Ritalin and say, here, you're going to, we're going to try to slow you down. But, if, you know, if it's not a true ADHD, then it's probably just going to speed them up and make things worse. So anyway, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I would say that the, the two most common ones, especially for kids and adolescents, are ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder. And for adults, it's probably antisocial personality disorder um, and maybe bipolar disorder. And, the, and exactly as you said, Andrew, their diagnosed with ADHD would give them stimulants. And if it's not a true ADHD, now it may be co-occurring. And people have said, well, what if they have both? Can stimulants help? And I said, stimulants can help them filter out stimuli and focus, but it's not gonna help them remember three directions at once. It's not gonna help with the FASD piece. But if it's a misdiagnosis, exactly as you said, and the problems with inattention or impulsivity are not due to true ADHD, then their behavior will get worse. And unfortunately, then what often happens is, what do we do? We increase the medication or we add a second medication or we change to another medication instead of saying, maybe this isn't really ADHD. And the same is true with, you know, it's a, we diagnose them as having an oppositional disorder, then we have to put in rewarding, very strict reward and consequence approaches. Uh, and if they don't, at some point, if they don't like the consequences, they will change their behavior. Um, in FASD, what we need to do is change their environment. So we need to do the change as opposed to expecting them to change. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge kind of, uh, if you want to call it a paradigm shift for people, for families and for people working in the field, that we need to, that it's hard to, it's hard to do that. Well, I was going to ask, is there reluctance among clinicians who have diagnosed someone, say, as ADHD, and then, you know, there are all the indications of it's FASD, but they're like, no, no, just we're going to stick with what we're doing and maybe try some different medications. Is there any 
like hesitancy or, or reluctance on the clinician end? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of reluctance because, again, we've been trained as clinicians to to address certain things in a certain way. And this is what we've been trained to do, and this is what we'll do. And if the person doesn't respond, then they are unmotivated uh, rather than maybe we're not taking the right approach. Um, I've heard about people, for example, recently, um, a young a young person who was uh, had been in uh, uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy three times had gone through TFCBT three times, not effective any of those times. And it's like, well, we'll just do it again. And I remember um, one of the people who developed, helped develop the concept of wraparound uh, in, in mental health treatment, which is look at the youth and family and say, what does this youth and family need? And how do we as a community get them? Um, John Vandenberg once said, what we typically do is if somebody doesn't respond to treatment, we just give them more of the same treatment. Uh, that's what we need to change, but that there's a reluctance to do that because recognizing FASD means we have to change what we do. You know, we think that everybody learns by experiencing the consequences of their actions and everybody needs to take responsibility for their actions and how that's how they learn. And again, works with a lot of people does not work with a lot of people with an FASD. And all it does is set them up to fail. But again, it's that, no, they're just not, when they're motivated, you know, and when we get to substance use, what do we do? We talk, if somebody's back in treatment for the third time, what do we say? Well, relapse is part of recovery, mm. right? Well, then what we're saying is they have not been ready yet to respond to our treatment. And when they are ready, then they will respond to our treatment and stay sober, as opposed to, Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe we need to change what we do to help them be successful in staying sober. Um, so, but there's a reluctance to do that. It's easier to just put all the onus on the individual to change. Now, let me ask you, what's the prevalence of substance use, alcoholism in people with FASD? Is it pretty common? We don't know exactly. Because we are, we, our, our, you know, the prevalence of the, the estimated prevalence of this is so much higher than our diagnostic capacity. So, you know, so many people with an FASD are not diagnosed. But the guess is, you know, I would think somewhere between at least a third to a half of people in substance use treatment may have an FASD. Um, and and especially where there's been a family history of substance use and not even necessarily alcoholism, but substance use. Now, in addition to that, I think one of the reasons we see a higher rate of FASD, there are a number of reasons. One is if there's been a family history, it's part of the family tradition. Um, also, they're, they're very susceptible to peer pressure. They're very naive and gullible. They want to fit in. They want to belong. Their pro-social peers reject them. They gravitate to the negative peers. They gravitate to the ones who are like at 13 years old, breaking into the, their parents' liquor cabinet and having drinks and smoking pot and doing all these things uh, because they want to fit in with that group, at least, and they're fitting in with someone. And I think the other reason is that 
so many people don't recognize the FASD. Uh, like with my son, Bill, uh, when he got into middle school, he came home one day, he said, dad, every day I walk into school, I feel stupid. Well, you know, you can't tolerate that every day, either truant or, you know, get thrown out of school. But as they get older and people don't recognize, you know, they'll say, you can do this if you want, you're bright, you just need to, you know, when you're ready, you will do it, all that, you know, right? When you're motivated, you will do it. Um, and they really try and they can't do it without the right supports. And that's that's so emotionally painful that one of the ways to deal with that emotional pain is to use substances. And that I understand why we're going to see them in our substance use programs, because it is so painful. And, you know, it blocks out that pain for the moment. Again, as I said earlier, not a great long term approach, but I understand why we will see a higher rate of FASD, of FASD in our substance use treatment programs. Have you seen any uh, particular activities or pursuits or hobbies that um, folks with FASD, uh, you know, find engaging that that uh, may be an answer or something that people can try to to incorporate that i mean i don't i am just trying to think of you know is, is there a pursuit that someone with fasd that has those uh cognitive limitations that might be physical that brings out a, a level of confidence and things like like lifting weights for instance is where i'm going with it like mm -hmm. it, do you see that you know getting to the gym and just focusing on one thing um it, it, have you seen any successes with anything like that oh yeah i think first of all people with nfasd have a lot of strength and one of the things that i really talk a lot about is we need a true strength-based approach and we need to start by identifying what are the strengths in this person what do they like to do? What do they do well? And how do we not use that as a reward for good behavior and take it away for bad behavior, which is what we typically do, but how do we build on that? Because we wanna build their self-esteem and competence. So in answer to your question, I think, yes, I think that, that often they are very social. They really like to be involved with other people. Um, so a job that has to do with that um, can be really useful. A job that's fairly repetitive so that it can get past damage working memory into long term memory and they know what to expect um, can be really useful. Uh, the physical activity, I think, is really helpful. Uh, my son, for example, you know, when he was younger, he tried all the different sports teams, but team sports are really difficult often for those with an FASD. Um, but then he got involved in. Um, he was on a swim team and that's it's on a team, but it's individual mm -hmm. uh, and had a great coach and also got involved in karate and loved karate, which is, as you said, very physical um, and very repetitive and in a group, but really individual. Uh, and and so I think that those kinds of things are really helpful. Often they are incredibly creative with things like music, art, dance. And the key is, okay, if they are, let's connect them with that. A group of them do really well. They, they often do really well with the elderly. They often do really well with little kids. Now, some of them have sexually inappropriate behaviors, but most of them do not. Um, 
Many of them do well with people with physical disabilities. So things like helping out at Special Olympics or something like that, or helping out in a nursing home. Um, many, some of them are really good with animals. So, but they're often not good with their peers because their peers remind them that they're different. And that's, that's hard to take that, you know, their peers are doing all these things that they're not doing. So I think that those are areas, if we recognize them and pick that up, you know, gee, this person is really good with heart. Let's connect them with an art program or they're really good with animals. Is there a humane society uh, that they can volunteer at? Um, and I see them doing really well. Is there a nursing home that they can volunteer at or help with uh, and maybe and maybe get a job there? Uh, because, again, they're very social. They want to talk with people. They want to help people. They want to be liked. Um, but it needs to be with somebody supervising them who recognizes the FASD, who can be, you know, again, very literal with them in terms of and prepare them if there's going to be a change in what they want them to do. Um, and also praise them for what they're doing well. Yeah, I, I love the strength based approach, and I think that works in a lot of different areas too. Um, one of the things that came to mind uh, <clears throat> was you mentioned <clears throat> sexually inappropriate behavior, which is not you, you said it wasn't common, but there, I mean, but that's that's across society anyway. Um, is there what about romantic relationships, and then beyond that? Um, uh, reproduction, are there any passed down effects from FASD? I mean, it, you know, because that would assume sort of genetics or epigenetics and things like that. What, what, right. what, what do we That's have there? That's a great question. Um, and in terms of, you know, what, what we know at this point is that, you know, if an individual does not consume alcohol during their entire pregnancy, their child will not have an FASD. Now, are there other things that could be transmitted either from one generation to another or skip generations, which is that epigenetic approach that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are other things, but, but the FASD itself um, is really is not genetically transmitted as we understand at this point. Um, and actually there was a, a man in uh, France back in the 1950s and 60s, early 60s named Paul Lemoyne um, and he did work with, he identified a number, 127 children uh, with something that he called alcohol embryopathy. That was before the term fetal alcohol was syndrome uh, was coined. Um, and he followed those families. And some of those parents did not consume alcohol dur during their ensuing pregnancies. And none of those children had any of the effects of alcohol embryopathy. So what he was seeing was this was not genetically transmitted. Mm -hmm. um, so can somebody with an FASD have a child who does not have an FASD? The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of romantic uh, relationships, often they really want that intimate relationship. But because they're naive and gullible, they often get into relationships that may be abusive um that may be you know people using them but when we get when they get the right fit they have they can have a really good relationship i remember one one young woman with um fas who married her husband was in the navy and he took care of all of the bills and paid all the bills because her ability to manage money was really 
you know, a problem for her. Um, but she also, she loved animals and developed an, a, a grooming service for animals. So she had her job and that worked really well in terms of that fit um, of, you know, recognizing what are the strengths mm -hmm. and, and what are the challenges that we need to take over. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So I'm uh, switching gears a little bit. What what are some strategies that you would like or some information, knowledge, awareness that you would like to propagate to clinicians, healthcare workers out there to learn to look and ask and recognize? Yes. Okay. Well, I guess one thing is to to look at the people who aren't doing well. Uh and before you say that they are oppositional or they are unmotivated or they are resistant, take a step back and ask yourself, could there be something else going on here that we're missing? Could it be an FASD? Um, if we change this approach, let's see if they respond differently. Let's see, instead of saying, you need to do A, B, and C, let's go do this, you know, um, for a parent. Instead of saying to their child, go brush your teeth, get in your pajamas, get ready for bed, and then they're not ready for bed, and then they get punished for it, say, let's go upstairs and brush your teeth. And, you know, again, because at that, at, before that, they're diagnosed as being oppositional. Well, what I learned with my son is if I broke it down to one step at a time, okay, let's go up to the bathroom, brush your teeth. If he was truly oppositional, he would have refused and had no problem doing it. So breaking it down to one step at a time, modeling for them, which is doing things with them. And we get so worried about, oh, we're just fostering dependency. We're just enabling and that's bad. No, we want to enable them to succeed. So doing things with them, modeling for them is really helpful. Uh, that's one thing and, and seeing yourself in whatever role you're in as a as a model. So you need to model how do you respond in different situations, for example. Um, how do you express anger without physical aggression? Because often they have not learned that. Um, so that's that's one thing. I think overall it's building on strengths and abilities. And one of the things I find in people with mental health disorders, this isn't just FASD, but mental health disorders, substance use issues, um, other people with disabilities have heard, but especially with mental health issues and substance use issues, they have heard over and over and over again in their lives what they've done wrong. And they've rarely heard what they've done right. So what I tell people, I tell this to professionals, I tell it to families, start telling this individual five times a day, every day, what they've done right. Uh, and write everything down because when things go wrong, you'll forget that there was anything that ever happened right. Um, <laughs> and some of these people have never heard that before. They've never heard anything positive. Um, and what we wanna build on is what they do well and what they do right so that they have that. And that helps them then take those positive steps. We want to build a support system for them. And then this is the other important thing in FASD, which I think is different from others. 
because from others, the, for others, the idea is helping them figure out what they need to do so that they can go out and do this on their own and be able to manage, you know, life. In FASD, I think the goal is helping them recognize that anytime they are not sure about something, anytime they have a question about something, here's who they ask. They have a, a point person who they can talk to, maybe a family member, maybe a community person, maybe a professional, and a backup person. Um, and that asking questions is not a sign of weakness. Asking questions is a sign of strength because they can't figure out in a specific situation what to do. Um, and they can't also, they don't, they can't take what they learned in one situation and apply it to another situation that is different and figure out, do I need to do something different here or do I do the same thing I learned there? That's again, that's a brain issue. That's not a behavior, that's not a willful behavior issue. Um, so there was an instance I had heard about of a young woman who graduated from substance use treatment, went to, got an apartment, came back to see her therapist and told her therapist that she was having sex with the landlord because the landlord told her that if she didn't have sex with him, that she would get evicted. And she said, you know, I really, I wasn't sure, but I don't want to lose my apartment. And again, if we could say to somebody like that, not, well, you will learn not to do that again. That's not going to work in FASD. But anytime you're not sure about something, you call me and let's talk about it. That can help them be so, you know, so more successful in reaching their potential. Mm. And, so, and then the other thing is to, to, to take a step back with people and look, and again, it's a strength thing. Look at what they do well, not just focus on what they're doing wrong, but let's focus on building on what they're doing right and what they do well. Very good. Very good. Well, I can see the passion and, and um, the energy you, you put behind this. And, and I really do appreciate uh, all that you do to spread the word and to get that in the forefront of everyone's mind who are working with these populations to consider uh, this and the strategies, the strength base and the positive support, the modeling and, and the patience that, that people with FASD, uh, require. And, and I just wanted to thank you for all that you do. And I was, you know, I, I was listening in the background, um, in those two days of programs that we had recently. And that's what, uh, you know, why I wanted to reach out and talk to you just so I can get the word out even more as much as I can and, and help you get it, get it out to the world because I think I think I think we you know this this is probably way more prevalent than we think um, mm -hmm. and one of the things that concerns me is some of the statistics I read about you know the isolation and the depression and and substance abuse over the last two years I think we're going to need even more uh, people who are aware of this and know how to deal with it so again right. thank, thank you so much and any any last uh words of wisdom that you'd want to share and also let us know how people can can uh learn more about FASD and more about you and how to get in contact and 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 hire you for consultative consultative <laughs> services and all the things that you do um well you know again i guess uh my words of wisdom would be that people with an FASD you know have great strengths and can be wonderful people. The people I have met over the years, and I've met many of them with an FASD, are often just very caring 
very wonderful people who get caught in a lot of negative things and then the focus is the negative. So, so look for those positives uh, and enjoy them. I tell families all the time, I want you to, and for professionals too, but especially for families, I want you to spend 15 minutes a day just having fun with your child. Just set aside time to have fun instead of always focusing on they need to do the homework. They need to do, they didn't do their chores. They didn't do this. Um, just one, one last um, experience in, in uh, working with some substance use treatment programs that I thought was so telling was this was a men's residential substance use treatment program. And I did the training on FASD and uh, one of when I did, I always do follow up coaching calls and in one of the calls, one of the staff members said, you know, it's interesting. I used to tell when the men went out for the day, either to go for to a job or go for an interview or go to a meeting, I would say to them, I'll see you when you get back. And some of them would come back at midnight or one in the morning. And he said, since the training, I don't say that anymore. Now what I say when they leave in the morning, I say, I'll see you at five o'clock when you get back. And they're all back on time. Uh, and it's just that sometimes it's just a little shift that makes a huge difference in you know helping people be successful. So um, I think just keeping that in mind and that everything you do really matters. And again, these individuals especially are seeing you are, are looking at you in terms of being a model and, and role model. So just keep that in mind. And, and in terms of myself, uh, at this point, I'm an independent something. Uh, since, so I do, I, I work with, with agencies, I work with states, I work with provinces um, in Canada uh, around FASD, I work with families. Uh, and the best way to get me is um, email. Uh, and my email address is uh, D as in David, D as in David, U-B-O-V-K-S-Y, which is the reverse of my name, which is <laughs> K-S-Y at Verizon.net. Um, that's probably the best way to get me. Uh, and I, I hear that there are, well, I've been told that there are videos of some of the trainings that I've done on YouTube. I never have seen YouTube, so, well, but apparently there are. Well, I'll put your email address and some of those. I did find some of those uh, as I was researching before <laughs> for our podcast. So I'll put those in the description for this podcast. And and really, uh, Dan, you're a beautiful human, and I love uh, all that you do and to help make the world a better place. And I really appreciate your time um, today. So thank you. Well, and thank you so much, Andrew, for having me asking me to do this. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate your interest in spreading the word around this all right it's so helpful for people yeah it is i think a lot of what you said can be applied i think to all relationships yep. you know, just strength-based patience and, and and spending time 15 minutes having fun with your kids who, who doesn't need to do that so right i agree with you all that makes the world a better place well thanks again dan i appreciate it okay take care take care